Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for episode 17 of our national conversation about conversations about race, the Carson Follies episode. I'm Baratunde Thurston, and I'm kind of back. What's up, y'all? I'm here with my co-discussants, Raquel Cepeda. Hello. What up, what up? Tan- welcome. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Tanner Colby. Hello, sir. Hello. You were missed. Hello. I like being missed. Thank you so much. I miss you guys, too. Only having you in my ears is a little weird. Uh, and we have a special guest joining us today, New York Times magazine writer, Jay Kang. What's up, Jay? Hey, how's what it going? Up? Is that poetry? No, no, no. Oh. It's like a Buddhist saying. Oh, that's yeah. so, what does it say? Uh, it says, shine your shoes for the fat lady. That's so cool. And for those who are not in the room, Raquel's asking about a tattoo on Jay's forearm. Yeah. I got Very it when cool I was, tattoo. I think, like 20 and a bit unstable. <laughs> The next B-side is going to be all about your tattoos. All these questions. <laughs> yeah, I'll not be here. About Jay's tattoo. So in the last episode of this podcast, half the people in this room discussed in-group bias in light of a heroin epidemic among white people and the long, strange tale of GOP presidential candidate, Dr. Ben Carson. So here's our producer, A.C. Valdez, with some of what you all had to say about these two issues and more. Hit it, A.C. Hey, Baratunde. So, people feel some kind of way about Ben Carson. <laughs> like, <laughs> little rich homie Kwan type of thing going on with him? Uh, people, people are scared. Uh-huh. Evan wrote in to say, Ben Carson terrifies me. Uh, Sarah. Wait, did Evan say why? Uh, well, I, we have like a million. <laughs> okay, well, let's not pause on that. Sorry, Evan. <laughs> we, your fear has been acknowledged. Uh, it is I valid. Wanna, I want to try to get all of these. Sarah from Hawaii wrote in saying the roast on Ben Carson was disappointing. You guys did not cite any credible sources to disprove any of his stories. You just mentioned someone said he was lying. The thing I like about Carson is that people asked him to run and he did. You guys made that sound like it was a bad thing. Kept saying that he bought into the story that people were feeding him. Would you rather he told people he wouldn't run? I'd rather have a man who really did work his ass off, earn himself a kick-ass education on his own. No one just happens to go to Yale or falls into being the most well-known neurosurgeon. And why shouldn't we look up to someone like that, regardless of the fact that he's black? In your podcast, it's like Ben couldn't win. Every success he's had, you made it sound like a bad thing and that he's just trying to sell his book. It's a shame. Damn. Yeah, it doesn't even sound... I don't even recognize... I, I don't even... We could. I mean, we, couldn't, we didn't have any um, reliable sources to disprove that Joseph built the uh, pyramids in Egypt. My bad. I couldn't find, like, a... I couldn't find any, like, anything to... Well, I I think to the point she's making, yeah, he has a lot of amazing accomplishments that he has thoroughly and roundly discredited in the last couple of years with this foray into conspiracy theory politics. We can respect him for all of his past accomplishments, but at the same time, what he's doing, why he's doing it, I don't even know at this point. You could say, oh, he's just doing it for money to sell books, but it seems a little more messianic and narcissistic than that. He does have crazy ideas about... Joseph building the pyramids to store grain and all of these other wacky ideas. But, I mean, if you take him seriously, go for it. 
I don't know. I, I just, I don't know how anyone can take him seriously. Is there something, as the new person to the table, Jay, do you have any wisdom on uh, Dr. Carson that you've just been itching to say out loud into a microphone? The only thing I will say where I feel like maybe coming off a thread of what the, is it the listener or the mm-hmm. who wrote in said, there seems to be an extra effort amongst some people in the media to even discredit things like the surgical procedures that he pioneered. And that, mm. and those points where I, I feel like maybe that is, uh, I don't know, I, I guess I don't understand. Like, it seems very obvious that he was a very ingenious or pioneering surgeon. In terms of his political career and some of his ideas and all that sort of stuff, I don't know, since he puts it out there, most of the time, I just don't really see like the media conspiracy that some people see about this. These are things that he has said. Yeah. Most of the time, people aren't even reacting about it. They just like quote him, and then you know that's what's out there. And if that seems conspiratorial to some people, then I, you know, I, I think that they're just going to feel that way. I do pick up on a general impatience in the media for, like, really, he's still, he's still running for president, because that was supposed to be a summer fling, and now you're trying to date us, and we're not. <laughs> We're trying to move forward as a nation, and mm-hmm. the Trump-Carson combo is just throwing everybody for a loop. The fact that they're both still polling basically at double Rubio and Cruz, who are kind of in the next tier, both of whom have some actual political elected experience. So the, the political media are just like, we don't, they don't know what to do with this. They haven't faced this situation. This is not Perot. This is not Herman Cain. This is a, a whole different thing. And you talked about how the Republican Party shouldn't even be called a party on that last one. So I, I definitely feel a sense of like dismissiveness and mm-hmm. even uh, incredulity, anger, mockery, a condescension, uh, all toward this guy who just, uh, he's not supposed to be where he is. What I liked about y'all's discussion last week was the simplistic story he tells that, as if that scales to everybody else. Like, because I am exceptional, so can you, and I should be president. And the hubris and the like extreme confidence, like... Obama got shit for just being a state senator and trying to be president. This guy doesn't know anything. Like, his own foreign policy advisors are, like, talking shit about him in the New York Times. And he's just like, I did surgery so I can fix America, I guess. Like, he's a hybrid of Jeb's. Jeb can fix it slogan, but he's actually fixed kids' brains. So I, I get really frustrated by, like, the presumption that, okay, so, yeah, you pioneered some cool stuff. Yeah. And you got a whole bunch of evangelicals who really like you. Because they probably have some like suppressed race shit going on inside of them. And now you just say, like, yeah, I, I'm going to deflect everything. Every question's a gotcha question. So he presumes too much, I think, in terms of that he could actually be commander in chief. But I do see that media impatience, and I am with it. I'm with the media impatience, too, <laughs> if I may so interject. Yeah. Um, but I feel like he only became a Republican star once he started dissing Barack Obama because people love right. black-on-black crime, <laughs> especially white people in the Republican Party. So when they saw that he dissed them in front of him at a, I think it was a prayer, prayer breakfast, a yeah. prayer breakfast. They were like, "Wait a minute, this guy. We can sit. We anything, can have a black guy too. Exactly. We can have a black guy too. And then he could. And everything we feel about black people here, but he projects yeah. and he feels, you know. So they got him to kind of basically sick him on Obama. Yeah. And I think now they're over it, and that's why people are like, "Okay, ready? Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on." Yeah. But I mean, what's worse? What's worse? Trump and Carson or Rubio and Cruz? You know, I had this. I saw this tweet months ago and it's stuck in my head the whole time and it's only become more terrifying to me which is that if they ran together then they would almost answer the questions that people have about each candidate and so like when Trump is accused of racism if he is running with 
Ben Carson, you just play listen. We're just yeah, two accomplished like, outsiders. Yeah, 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 exactly. Trying to make America yeah, great again. Exactly. With some, gifts some of my best running mates. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is there another one I see that there is, wanna... there is actually an entirely other dimension to the Ben Carson conversation. Oh, keep, yeah, keep really it coming. To get Let's to. do it. Let's do it. Sorry for uh, the interlude. And it's represented here by Kathleen. Hey, guys. My name is Kathleen. I am calling from Massachusetts. I wanted to respond to your comments about Ben Carson's religious beliefs. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I'm a product of Adventist education through college, as was my husband. My husband's family, in fact, went to the same church as the Carsons and have been to his home in Maryland. That was a long time ago now. My husband was very small and doesn't remember everything about it. But, of course, throughout our childhoods, we all understood that Ben Carson was an Adventist hero and his redemption story was well known. In the last episode, Jamil said that it's worth taking a close look at Carson's religious beliefs, and Raquel brought up the fact that he wants to bring church and state together. I wanted to point out here that historically, Seventh-day Adventists have been relatively apolitical, they've been pacifist, and very strong proponents of the separation of church and state. I'm going to read for just a brief moment from the official Seventh-day Adventist church documents. In our own church history, Adventists have joined with other religious and secular organizations to exert influence over civil authorities to cease slavery and to advance the cause of religious freedom. Religious influence has not always resulted in the betterment of society, however. Religious persecution, religious wars, and the numerous examples of social and political suppression perpetrated at the behest of religious people confirms the dangers that exist when the means of state are used to advance religious objectives. Adventists should not, however, become preoccupied with politics or utilize the pulpit for our publications to advance political theories. I also wanted to bring up pacifism because another hero among Seventh-day Adventists was Desmond Doss, who was the first conscientious objector to receive a Medal of Honor during World War II. And pacifism, it seems to me, is in direct opposition to the attitudes about war that a Republican president might represent. Ben Carson said last February that he would order the military to destroy ISIS and would not tie their hands. If you contrast that, which he said in February on Fox News, with some of the statements from his 2012 book, America the Beautiful, he was a little bit more ambivalent about the morality and the justification for our wars just three years ago. So his stance now, and in light of the official Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, is rather perplexing. I don't personally identify as Seventh-day Adventist anymore, but I'm still well acquainted with many Adventists. My family is Adventist. My husband's family is all Adventist. And I certainly won't speak for all of them, but I think that a lot of Adventists would agree that Ben Carson's actions and the things that he's saying lately, and even his bid for an election, is rather bizarre. Thank you. Hashtag rather bizarre. Hashtag rather bizarre. <laughs> that was excellent. That was really what was great... that? What was her name? Kathleen. Yeah. Kathleen, awesome. thank you. She was like she was at the table. She yeah, was, she, she was dropping was, knowledge. Though she was dropping knowledge. She made me feel like I'm in less of a frat party right now <laughs> with all these guys in the room. I really, really appreciated her voicemail. But you know, the reason why it's so easy to like fuse the whole church and state thing when we're talking about Ben Carson is because he's always invoking his personal religious beliefs when it comes to his decision making. Mm-hmm. He said that his personal religious beliefs will be something that he takes into account if he becomes president with some of like, for example, abortion. Right. And all right. these other I mean, so he's always he's the one who yeah, fuses churches. It up. So but I'm as equally perplexed as she is. Yeah. Well, we got one more uh, voicemail from an Adventist perspective that I wanted to play for What? Two Adventist <laughs> voicemails? That must be a podcast record. We're, we're, we're big in the Adventist community. Like for show about any race. podcast. 
Hey guys, I'm Kessia Rain, and I'm calling you from Chicago. The rhetoric of Ben Carson hurts my head in a major way. And that's been true since the start of his political momentum, that long speech at the National Prayer Breakfast. Then the rhetoric was embarrassing, and with more prominence and more sound bites, it's gotten only more embarrassing. I was a little embarrassed because I'm an American, but I was a lot embarrassed because I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And now Carson is, for many people, the public representative of my faith and my community of 18 million people. So when he says something outrageous about pyramids or Muslims or prison turning people gay, it feels like it implicates me. Even when Carson's stated opinions contradict the values and beliefs of the Adventist faith community, for instance, promoting religious liberty. So I hear the things he says, and I cringe. Then I cringed for a different reason. Tanner suggested that Carson's political ideas could be explained by mental imbalance, and, as evidenced by Carson's beliefs about the Earth's origins, a mind that can believe anything. Basically, if you can believe those fairy tales, reality doesn't matter to you. That's almost a direct quote. This religion bashing, which Tanner rightly called religion bashing before he launched into it, was unnecessary. And it was not helpful to the conversation. It wasn't a thoughtful engagement of any issues. It was a caricature and an insulting dismissal. In an off-the-cuff conversation with friends at a private dinner party, you could probably get away with something like that. But in a public forum, a conversation you have specifically so that you can broadcast it, a conversation you have with the stated desire of advancing our national conversation about race, it just didn't play well because it didn't actually advance our national conversation about race. It's totally fair to question, like Jamil Smith questioned, how Carson's religious beliefs affect his policy positions and how he might conduct himself if he got into the Oval Office. But it's not fair to wave away the entire question with a smug write-off based on a shallow understanding of another person's faith. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist believer. I'm an Adventist theologian, and formerly I was an Adventist pastor. I and many other people of faith in this country and around the world am committed to this because of my religious theological convictions, am committed to difficult conversations about race, committed to combating racism and promoting the dignity and social equality of people of all racialized ethnic groups. So yo, I enjoy your show and I believe in what you're trying to accomplish. But I hope that's the last episode with religion bashing. Thanks, guys. Damn. And today here a mic drop. <laughs> well, no, I'll 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 give you the mic drop, which is here on the internet. The universe is thirteen point eight two billion years old. That's science. Anyone in this room disagree with that? That's no. not what she was talking about. No, but I mean, do you? Is that how you want to respond to her? Look, was my tone wrong? It happens. What and what exactly? Because I didn't finish the whole last episode. What is what is the specific thing? But. I'm not the first person who said this. Many, yeah. many people said this about the fundamentalist attitude, whether it's fundamentalist Christianity, mm-hmm. fundamentalist Republicans. If you're a fundamentalist and that you are so deep in, in, into something that you cannot take any outside questioning, you've lost the ability for critical thinking. And to believe that the earth was created in six days, that is a mind that is impervious to fact. All due respect to people who choose to believe that, 
in my point of view, that's not reality. Yeah. This goes for all of the religious people who are supporting Israel because they think that once all the Jews go back to Israel, then the rapture is going to come and we're all going to be saved. And well, I say, excuse me, they're going to be saved and the rest of us are going to die. That is a very, very dangerous way of thinking. And that is the problem with religious fundamentalism as a general concept. And believing that the earth was created in six days is an example of that. It is a type of religious mind that someone has. And if Carson has that, if fundamentalist evangelical Christians who support George Bush and a militaristic policy in Israel believe that, it can be a dangerous way of thinking. And if my tone was glib, if my tone was dismissive, I apologize. But it is a serious argument. It's not just religion bashing. Well, you know, I just had a shoot at a Seventh-day Adventist church. Yeah. And one of the two main protagonists in the documentary I'm working on now is Seventh-day Adventist, and she challenged my own, because I was like, oh, come on, this is brainwashing you, this is brainwashing mm-hmm. you. But I realized, actually, by going to her church and sitting and listening, said even though I don't agree with everything, like, for example, they were giving, I guess you call it catechism, or mm-hmm. I don't know, classes. They were asking the kids between... 14 and, and 17 to they were teaching them about the Holocaust and asking them to put themselves in the position of human suffering and of what those kids must have gone through and try to you know so to me I, I kind of saw them pushing empathy and giving her community right. when she has none outside of it so while I'm not a Seventh-day Adventist and you know that's not how I rock I kind of see how it, aside from, as I agree with Tanner, I mean, I don't believe in like being radical about anything, really. Mm-hmm. Mo- even moderation. Moder- you have to be moderation and moderation. A radical moderator. <laughs> yeah, a radical moderator. <laughs> I can see how people who have found community and spiritual satiation would be offended by us overgeneralizing right. religion when we dis overgeneralizations about everything else. Mm-hmm. Well, let me say this. The previous caller who outlined so many of the other tenets of Seventh-day Adventist. No religion is all one thing or the other. They outlined so many like great and positive things, obviously, right. about this faith. Believing the world created in six days is not one of them. I, I've been on uh, you know, Bill Maher two times, and he's a real asshole when it comes to religion. He's kind of impervious to fact or empathy or even respect in many ways when it comes to Islam, and I think we'll probably get into it in the next episode and talk about Syrian refugees. But... There is, you know, any scientist who is also a religious person isn't technically capable of being impervious to fact. Like Ben Carson has accepted modern medical tools. Like he's not an ISIS person trying to live in the Stone Age. Even the ISIS people who are trying to live in a seventh century way of life are using YouTube to promote it. Right. So the, the cognitive, you know, balancing act that we all do to participate in the modern world yet still have some belief which isn't grounded in the thing, isn't automatically uh, dismissal. But as, as has been expressed already by you, Tanner, and by you, Raquel, it matters a lot when it affects the policies that impact millions of other people. So if his belief in the six-day creation story is just that, so be it. If it also means that he's denying global warming and our attempts to mitigate rising seawaters and pollution and asthma right. and like all these other things, then it matters. Right. If you believe the Earth was created in six days, you're not going to spend a billion dollars on the Hubble Space Telescope to find out that the Earth, the universe is maybe 16 billion years old, if that's the next level of discovery. Where where belief impacts policy, it's important. Yeah. There you go. Again, apologies for my tone to the caller, but uh, it wasn't just bashing. It was uh, an argument. And I'm glad for that level of engagement. Also, we got a new hashtag out of that one. Hashtag hurts my head. 
uh, in her describing trying to listen <laughs> to Ben Carson's speeches. That's really good. Do we need hashtags anymore? Yes. Really? Hashtags literally bring the world together. <laughs> really? Like it's, the, just, it's technically how that? they work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag yes. But can you just write yes? <laughs> and then find yes if you searched for it. Hashtag AC, what's <laughs> up next? Hashtag moving on to the next topic. <laughs> Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news, one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. All right. We were talking about in-group favoritism in the last uh, episode, and we actually got a really cool email from a sociologist in Minnesota, Dr. Ryan. I just finished last night's episode, Carson Follies, while folding my laundry, and I wanted to weigh in on something that was subject of a good deal of discussion. As the group transitioned from discussing the Carson phenomenon to talking about the New York Times article, you fitfully, see what I did there, went back and forth on Tanner's suggestion that we are hardwired to favor members of our own group. This issue is actually the point of some pretty robust debate from scholars doing work in evolutionary psychology, anthropology, sociology, political science. There is evidence, of course, that folks tend to show various kinds of attachments to and affinities for members of groups of which they are a part. But the nature and strength of these attachments are substantially bounded by two very important social factors. First, society has much to say about how the boundaries of group membership are drawn. And the salience of race as an important division of group membership is no more inevitable than many other factors which may have become the source of sociopolitical power and identity given a different history. Second point, social circumstances have a lot to say about just how salient those categories and thus the differences associated with them are. If your point was intended to be about family ties and not racial ties, that's a different bag of hammers, but that's not what I heard expressed. And recall that U.S. families are increasingly made up of members of different races. Final and most important point to me is one that I felt Raquel alluding to several times. Even if in-group favoritism was hardwired and not at all contextually dependent, one group has vastly disproportionate control of the apparatus of the state and of the market to leverage its in-group favoritism to the detriment of members of other groups. In-group favoritism in a system that is structured to favor white people is far more consequential, Jesus, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, than such homophily among, for example, Filipinos. Have a great day, folks. Dr. Ryan. Yo, that was me clapping. Well done on the homophily pronunciation. Thank you. That's really good. It's a very important word. And as I listened to that part of the discussion, I agree with uh, Dr. Ryan's assessment. The inclusion of power in what might or may not be human nature does change the effect of it. And so it's not as simple as it sounded like you painted it, Tanner, of we all just do this. Like black people would do the same thing and poor people do the same thing. Like the wealth factor, the power factor makes it more than just explained by like, oh, this is what naturally what people do. And it's like, well, if you control the state, then it really matters a bit more. But to his to the first part of his comment, which is about family relations and other type of social ties mm-hmm. that aren't just racial you're not going to get rid of in-group favoritism. You have to change the definition of the groups. People intermarry, people integrate, people assimilate, people join different groups, people shift their identities. If one group has all the power and they're not giving it up, do you remain with your own group or do you migrate to the group with the power? That has been the story of this country since day one. Every People assimilating, coming to this country, becoming white, and making that, making that choice. <laughs> 
<laughs> Go ahead, Raquel. I don't even know where to start because I want to talk about it in the next segment when we talk about definitions of xenophobia. Well, let's let's do it there. But that's, yeah. that's good. That's a good teaser. It's a good, to keep yeah. your podcast players yeah. fired up. Charge. Make sure charge your phones now. Make just, sure your battery level's good, and you know, get your laundry out so you can start folding exactly. it while you're listening to episode eighteen. Uh, <laughs> and the, uh, what about you, Jane? You want to jump in on that? I know you didn't hear the last. We're talking one, just, about. Let me just tell you what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. It sounded very dry, but we're talking about that article in the New York Times and basically white people calling for empathy, not that the drug, the war on drugs can be directed at them. So they're um, calling for empathy for white, you know, white people. And Jamil uh, from uh, the podcast Intersection and the senior editor of New Republic yep. was on as our as our guest co-discussant, and we were weighing in on that. And Jamil and I were like a little baffled by Tanner's kind of self-interested way that he was phrasing but why and was looking it at it. Because you, you talked about your group, how you like look at your own group and how you're going to always have your own group. And the I reason bet, why that, that, that everybody my is self interested. Right. Everybody, everybody does self that. Right. But then Jamil and I were like, well, if you're a white mother and I'm a mother that's Dominican, I'm going to feel pain for, your, for you because you're a mom and I'm a mom. So we can actually, we exist because there's intersection. It's just an inherent th- thing. So that's what that's what the, the basically the I was like, I mean I wasn't arguing in favor of in group bias out of self interest I was just observing that it exists yeah. you weren't we no, I don't think any of us were arguing I think that we just have a very a, a, just a very different way of expressing ourselves and and I thought the conversation was very like for example for me it's an emotional one because I've seen people die and be victims and casualties of the war on drugs and now all of a sudden that you're asking people to be empathetic because it's affecting a lot of whites. It's one of those things that, you know, that are, it's an emotional discussion that kind of, you know, warrants yeah. that kind of. Yeah. And part of the part of the discussion was also because the article dropped and social media exploded with a lot of some backlash basically being like, oh, now you care. Right. Oh, now it matters. And so, you know, Tanner's explanation being like, yeah, that's how we're wired. That's how it works. And so it's not unique to these white people with drugs. It would be the same for any group that is suddenly f- finally experiencing something that they can identify with. It basically takes it being personal. And do you have to have like a gay cousin or a gay daughter to give a damn about marriage equality? It also seems like a media issue where I think the media has gotten better to the point where they won't just write the story as mm-hmm. in, wow, the war on drugs is really a problem. Look at this white person, you know? They can get to a meta level where they say, to these people, the war on drugs is a problem because they are white people. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, and I, every time one of these stories comes out, there is always the sort of same backlash, which I think is a righteous backlash, which is that, you know, maybe you should have been telling these stories in different ways in the, in the months prior or the years prior, decades prior. But I don't know. I, I, every time I'm confronted something with something like, like this, I always get in this weird headspace because part of me wants to think that this is like very incremental progress I should be happy about. It. And the other part of me is just like, you know what? Like, I don't even want to read this. Like, weird, whatever, whatever <laughs> version of white guilt this is where it is like sort of looking at yourself and saying, well, I can't say this. And, you know, but this is really a story. But the core of the reason why it's a story is still because it's about white people, you know, even if it's a story about white people being about white people. It's mm. still about white people. And I, I don't know. It's so frustrating to me, I think. I, I don't ever like I never buy it, I guess. I always just sort of I mean, I shouldn't say it because it's too late. You said it too late. Partial employer. But, but I do find it frustrating because I feel like it's almost like a it's almost a trick that's being played. 
The trick is uh, called clickbait because the actual article was more, you know, like it showed both sides yeah. and it was more nuanced and everything. But it was like, you know, I forgot the title, but it was just like, what? Oh, the headline was <laughs> yeah, the more headline is clickbait. Yeah, the, and people, the head, you know, people love to mouth off online without reading what they're mouthing off about. That's it. That's I mean, a, that's so a pre-internet tradition. It would still tradition. piss you off, though, if you read the article. The article was a lot different. What? It was different than the headline, though. The yeah. headline was written to, like, to make it Click-based. seem like yeah. Yeah. things up. But it was still, I mean, it was still, you know, fucked up. Emily wrote in with maybe my favorite question for pre-Thanksgiving. Okay. Which is, I'm wondering if you can give me some guidance on how to deal with the they keep shooting each other, and why can't they pick themselves up by their bootstraps like the Asians' arguments I'll likely get from my racist cousin? Because this always happens around the holidays. Um, yeah, thanks. You know, holiday awkward dinner conversation advice. Anybody got anything? I avoid it. I my parents are, are weird. Have become more to the left than I am even now, and so we just don't even talk about it. This has only happened in the last four years or something like that. I think they got caught up with the election... And because uh, before that, there are certainly some conversations, but um, yeah, in the past four years, it's been actually right. a bit odd. I almost missed the sort of <laughs> like uh, strife of. You should go hang out with Emily. <laughs> yeah, right. My yeah. family, we don't have bad race discussions because everyone's pretty much on board with you know, let's all be tolerant and understanding and so on and so forth. And they are big fans of my writing and my book and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. We do avoid politics mainly because we, we used to get into politics more. But now the Republicans have become such a farce that I think my parents know that there's no defense for it. And so they just they know they're going to lose before we go. <laughs> they in. like so tap they out. So yeah. they tap out because like they can't defend Carson or Trump. So they're like, they're not even going to go there. It started with Sarah Palin. Like, <laughs> like when slippery slope, when, when Sarah McCain Palin was this. announced, everyone was, you know, everyone was like, oh, she's feisty. She's fiery. Yeah, she's going to be fired up. To defend and then like once, once she tanked, it was sort of like, well, good luck with that Obama thing. You wanted it. You got it. <laughs> go for it. My father's very, very similar to Aziz's Ansari's father in Master mm. of None. He's grown into that. He used to be a lot more hateful, but he's like grown into that like really funny, old, dry, old man, deadpan humor. We don't talk about politics because I'm a woman too, and my father's Dominican, and he only cares about what Sasha thinks. Mm, so, husband, and I'm already yeah. drunk by 12 o'clock, so <laughs> I already don't recognize my kids by the time dinner sit, uh, sit, uh, <laughs> served on the table. But we don't celebrate Thanksgiving. We talk about how you know the indigenous. We say a prayer to our ancestors and talk about how the indigenous people survived despite the genocide by academia. And we just sit there and we talk shit and we know it's just basically that doesn't come up. However, when I was my father's side of the family, they're super religious. I think they may be evangelical. But I remember going there and they would just Im- immediately as I walked in, try to pray on me or whatever. Right. Because yeah. I was like a heathen. I don't go to church and all that stuff. And decontaminate it was you. decontaminating yeah. me. And then my cousins are very, let's say, um, on the other side of the law, like they're kind of always in trouble. Uh, and one is one is yeah. one is not with us anymore. Yeah. And I remember one of them had problems with like five or six of his children's mothers and he was going to go to jail and all that. And my aunt said, well, the Bible says that you should multiply, but you can't as long as he's not being effeminate, as long as he's not wow. being. So I was like, well, you know what? I think I'm gay. And I just de- dealt with that for the whole, like, I just played up. You like, intentionally. Straight up, like, intentionally until yeah. so everybody got stunned. And I just messed with them that way. And I have never told her that I'm not. She doesn't even know that I'm married. She's my father's sister. We don't <laughs> stay in touch. But, you know, I kind of like to, you know, have fun. Yeah. But other than that, like, the race thing doesn't really get, like, we don't, we kind of know where we stand. I don't celebrate Thanksgiving. If you come to my house, you can't talk shit like that, you know. That is amazing. I'm, my family's tradition is very simple. Uh, it's just my sister. She's coming into town. It's very exciting. 
And uh, we will not be disagreeing about about race matters uh, because we are born of the same mother and neighborhood and see the world pretty similarly. Uh, but in terms of Emily's question, that that bootstraps, you know, why don't they pick themselves up by their bootstraps? I almost lose patience with it. And obviously she doesn't because she has like the situation going on. But it's like, there aren't there 50,000 articles that have debunked this already? Just like <laughs> go to your Facebook feed, p- put it on their phones and just force them to read it before you feed them. The notion that this country's sustained efforts to prevent the liberation of folks of color are so overwhelming. And if you just look at wealth alone, like I think for someone like her to look at the distribution of wealth in the nation and whose family has homes to bestow upon their kids, like what is the economic value of whiteness in America versus pretty much any other group, you can start to imagine, you don't have to believe, you even imagine a world where that might impact the outcomes of people generations down the line. And I I think it's also important for someone in her shoes to not, like, defend blind gimmies and handouts and this myth on the right that, like, black people are just asking for free stuff because that's what Fox is telling her, her people, that we just want free shit. And it's like, no, 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 we just want, like, the removal of this extra cost, you know, on our living standards and styles. And if you could see the loans availability, the health options available. Our, our like, Baratunde, you were asking simple. so much from a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, I am, because right it takes a long time. And all you guys just said is drink and, like, don't do shit. So I want to try to give her something to oh, try. Oh, wait a minute, I got something. And you said, like, <laughs> tell, t- basically tell her that you're gay to, like, stir the pot. <laughs> but you know what? Right. Just so. answer everything with because of colonialism. <laughs> hashtag ha- uh, yeah. Oh, not another hashtag <laughs> Hashtag colonialism There we go Alright AC Happy Thanksgiving y'all Happy happy day of remembrance Happy indigenous survival day there you Despite go. the man <laughs> This has been episode 17 B-Side Responding to your talks and thoughts On the Carson Follies episode I'm Baratunde Thurston Here with co-discussants Raquel Cepeda Tanner Colby Special guest, New York Times Magazine writer Jay Kang. Hashtag, we out. <laughs>